Dear Father, we come before you again. Lord, we thank you and worship you and to honor you. For you are God and you are worthy of all honor and power and glory and majesty and dominion forever and ever. Even your son Jesus Christ, our Lord, who saved us, is worthy of all power and majesty and power and dominion forever and ever. We thank you, Lord, for the church. We thank you for saving the church. We thank you for the blood of Christ that makes us whole again. We thank you for his faithfulness to take the wrath of God on the cross for our sake. We thank you, Lord, for your Holy Spirit who gives us understanding of spiritual things. We thank you, Lord, for your word that you have given us. And we thank you for the understanding that you shall give us even now. And we pray that you give understanding to your people, to as many as who listen to this message in here and as the message goes out. And as we know, the scripture says, your word will not return to you void. So, Lord, I pray that you accomplish your work with this word. We pray and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. John 7, 9 to 18. John 7, 9 to 18. And this is what the word of the Lord says. When he had said these things to them, that is to the brothers, remained in Galilee, but when his brothers had gone up, then he also went up to the feast, not openly, but as it were in secret. Then the Jews sought him at the feast and said, Where is he? And there was much complaining among the people concerning him. Some said, He is good. Others said, No, on the contrary, he deceives the people. However, no one spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews. Now about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. And the Jews marveled, saying, How does this man know letters, having never studied? Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but his who send me. If anyone wants to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true and no unrighteousness is in him. The word of the Lord. My doctrine is not mine. That's our sermon title. My doctrine is not mine. The brothers of the Lord Jesus have tried to redefine the mission for him. They want him to go to Jerusalem to show himself to the crowd. 
to advertise himself. To put up a show in Jerusalem. That many people may follow him. Because they argue that, well, if you are doing these things, all these miracles, all this teaching, you should not do them in secret. If you seek to be known, go and show yourself out to the public. Because to their way of thinking, if he remains in Galilee, that is doing things in secret. You go to Jerusalem, the center of worship, and show yourself at the Feast of Tabernacles when the whole of Israel is in Jerusalem for the feast. And this feast was a week-long feast. Actually, it was eight days long. But the Lord has denied to go with them and has refused their authority over him. Jesus Christ is God. And he does not react to the ideas or plans of man. But men react to his movements, to his will, to his purpose, to his decrees. Because he's God. Men are not in control of anything. And they have never been in control of anything. And whatever men do is not significant with respect to the will and purpose of God. And so Jesus said, your time is always opportune. You always have your time and your time does not improve or add or reduce anything that God has already purposed to accomplish. Listen to what God says in Job 35, 5-8. And this teaching is necessary for us to come to God as lepers. Because if there's a teaching that says God is so desperate for you to come to heaven, then you're not coming to Jesus as a leper. Because God is already desperate to have you in heaven. God has never been desperate for anybody to come to heaven. There's a preacher, uh, Adam Morris, at the conference, I believe. He was answering, he was quoting someone who had been asked, why did it take God that long to create man? Because God has always existed from eternity. And Adam Morris said, God was showing man that he doesn't need them. He did not create man because he needed man. He created man to display his power and his glory to man. So in Job 35, 5 to 8, Job 35, 5 to 8, this is what the word of the Lord says. Look to the heavens and see. And behold the clouds, look to the heavens, and behold the clouds, they are higher than you. You even marvel at the clouds. 
you marvel at the heavens. But God says, if you sin, what do you accomplish against him? Or if your transgressions are multiplied, what do you do to him? If you are righteous, what do you give him? Or what does he receive from your hand? Your wickedness affects a man such as you and your righteousness is son of man. So this is what God is saying. Whatever you are is insignificant. Whether you are wicked, if you are wicked, it's only going to affect someone like me. It doesn't affect God. If you are righteous, it's only going to affect someone like me. It doesn't really affect God. So God is saying, you are insignificant. And when you realize that you are insignificant, when you hear of grace, then you listen to grace as an insignificant person. Because grace is only appreciated by those who feel their insignificance. Who know that they are nothing. Jesus said, without me, you can do 99%. No. Without me, you can do nothing. Nothing. So whether men are righteous or wicked, it does not do anything to God. It does not affect him. It does not change him. It does not improve or remove anything about him. Jesus says, man's time is always opportune. It is always ready to do more evil deeds. But when the son of God shows up, he is not here to waste time. He is not just loitering around. When I was in high school, they, the teachers used to like loitering. It's, it's actually a word that's not very much used in America. But if you go to Zimbabwe, it's used a lot. Why are you loitering around? <laughs> he is not just loitering or wandering aimlessly on earth. He has come down on a divine mission to glorify the Father and to be glorified. And the cross is the ultimate mission for which he came down from heaven. The cross is the mission that he was given by the Father to glorify the Father in his own obedience to death. To glorify the Father in being smitten by the Father. Being scourged, being wounded, being afflicted, and being humiliated for the sake of the transgressions of his people. That's the mission of Jesus. It pleased the Father to bruise him. The Father, God the Father, was glorified in bruising his son and the son was glorified in being afflicted by the father. That's the Jesus of the Bible. And this bruising of the son by the father is what purchased your salvation. This is what delivered you from your sins. 
Salvation was only accomplished by the bruising of the sun. And there is no other way that one can be saved outside being in this one that the father has already afflicted. We need to understand that. Because the church world does not understand this. Salvation is only in the one that the father put on the cross. There's no other way of being saved. This one who was lifted up on the cross, he was not lifted up by the Jews or the Romans. It's God the father who put him there. It's Jesus who put himself there. He said, I have this commandment from my father to lay down my life and to pick it up. Salvation is not in the good works of sinners because sinners are lepers. Salvation is not in your self-introspection because there's nothing in you to look at other than those boils of leprosy coming from your heart. What is outside is an expression of the internal reality. Salvation is not in our faith and it's not in our repentance. Those are results of salvation. Those are benefits from salvation. Those are signs and symptoms of salvation. Salvation is only found and was purchased by the shame of the Son of God on the cross because your salvation required the humiliation of one who is God. Gotta hear that. Your salvation required the humiliation of one who is God. He was stripped naked that he may cover your own nakedness. He was forsaken by the Father that you may not be forsaken. You see, we have been attending that church, the Fig Leaf Baptist Church. We've been trying to cover ourselves. Since the fall, we have been trying to cover ourselves. And even when we, when we are smelling nice, it's part of the Fig Leaf Church. That's the teaching from the Fig Leaf Church. We are trying to cover our uncleanness. And if Jesus does not come and cover your own nakedness by his righteousness, none else has better or enough garments to cover you. Even if you remember the story of the man who had the legion of demons, go read that story again. Jesus actually brought a set of clothes for the man. He could not be clothed, but when Jesus shows up, he covered him. And you need Jesus to cover you. 
you can't cover yourself. You need Jesus to cover you. So the son has this in mind. He has this hour of glorification in mind, but it can't be expedited like a drive-through order, like the brothers are trying to do. I used to work at McDonald's, so I know something about drive-through orders. I, I did drive-through. And, and we had to maintain a particular time for when the order was placed and when we put it in the customer's hand. It was our success factor. It was critical. The manager of the store was evaluated on that. But Jesus is no customer at MACD. Jesus is not placing an order at the drive-thru. He is not trying to reduce the time that this work is done. His time has been set from eternity. And he is moving heaven and earth to this hour. The devil is in his hands and he is being moved by God's hands. The Jews are in his hands and so their rulers and high priests, they are all moving in his time, in his hands. He is tearing their hatred of him so that they can put him on the cross. And as you continue to read, as we are going to find out, the hatred of the Jews for Jesus actually is just going to start skyrocketing from this time on. Why is God who is pushing it? He has to be on the cross on the Passover. And it's necessary for this to begin right now. But Jesus goes to Jerusalem to the Feast of Tabernacles, not in obedience to his brothers, but to his father. The Feast of Tabernacles is about his tabernacling in the flesh. As John would say, he tabernacled among us. And this word became flesh. That is John 1.14. God took up human flesh. That's the tabernacling of the word of God in human flesh. So Jesus has come and tabernacled in human flesh that he may bring God to man. And that he may bring man to God. So in Jesus, God and man meet Jesus, the God-man. And this is what God determined to be done from eternity. And is not going to fail. And so he determined to remind his brothers about who was in charge and told them they did not understand the things of God. They were evil and wicked men. And Jesus said that to his brothers, unbelievers, and they could not tell him what to do. Sinners cannot tell Jesus Christ what to do. Sinners cannot choose Christ. Because in the book of John, Jesus is going to say, we already saw that, in John chapter 6, when he said to the disciples, I chose you, you did not choose me. And he's going to say that again later on in the book of John. Sinners cannot choose Jesus Christ because that is telling Jesus the schedule 
of his own work. You don't tell Jesus when you want to get saved. Jesus will show up at the village, through the village, at God's appointed time. Jesus showed up and met with the Samaritan woman at God's appointed time. He knew exactly that she was there that afternoon. Jesus is God. And he is sovereign. And doesn't really appreciate suggestion boxes. And there are no suggestion boxes in heaven to improve customer service. But the brothers want to bait him to go to Jerusalem because they want him killed there. And in this chapter, we are going to see the confrontation between Jesus and the Jews. As long as Jesus and the Jews are together, guess what? It's war. Even more, the Jews were already looking for him before he showed up. So they actually came down to the feast with Jesus in mind, handing him down to see what they could do to kill him. So in verse 11 to 13, we are told, Then the Jews sought him at the feast and said, Where is he? (laughs) They were seeking for him. And there was such much complaining among the people concerning him. Some said, He is good. Others said, no, on the contrary, he deceived the people. However, no one spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews. So the Jews came to the feast strictly to find occasion to start a fight. There was much complaining, much memorying, much disgruntlement amongst the people. They were secretly debating about Jesus. And his claims about himself. Because when you're reading the book of John, the issue is, who is Jesus? And Jesus has come and said, I am the Logos, the Son of God. I am the Son of God. And they understood what he meant by that. Because if I were to come and say, I'm the Son of God to you all, you're thinking, oh yeah, of course, yeah, God created all men, so yeah, the son of God, that makes sense. <laughs> but the Jews did not understand it that way. They understood what Jesus was saying. They understood that Jesus was claiming to be God himself. And Jesus never apologized for it all the way to the cross, and the Jews were offended by it. And so the fight continued. The opinion is divided about Jesus. The opinion of people about Jesus is always divided. Jesus always brings a division of opinion. Always. Some said he is good. Not that he is the son of God or the Messiah, but just good. He's just good. And there are many in our day, we would think Jesus was just a good man, a good moral man, a good moral teacher who helped people to set a good example like Gandhi. These sound like they love Jesus and many of these are in our churches today. 
They think Jesus is a good man until he opens his mouth and make very big and bold claims about himself and about how salvation works and how men are evil and are unable to come to him unless the father draws them to him. So that offends the Jesus is good crowd. That offends people. They want to be in good and polite company with Jesus. Rubbing shoulders with Jesus. But the Lord is not impressed. Yet there are those who hold to a contrary opinion. And it is not a better opinion. It's just a contrary opinion. They thought he was a deceiver. That he was deceiving people by his claims. I would say, I used to be in this camp. Just, Jesus is a deceiver. But, (laughs) uh, praise God for irresistible grace. These people thought that Jesus was deceiving people by his claims of being the son of God and how God gives eternal life. And that was always the sticky point in the whole discussion every time that Jesus met with the Jews. It was always about the identity of Christ and how one gets saved. But John tells us that none was coming out in the open to say what they believed about Jesus. They were afraid of the Jews. They were men pleasers and not God pleasers. They were afraid of the creatures and not the creator who was amongst them. Truth divides and Jesus always divides and the true gospel Always divides. Love does not conquer. It's truth that conquers. Truth. Because Jesus is truth. The person of Jesus and how men get saved is the stickiest point even in our day. You will not have anything that is as controversial about the person of Jesus and how men get saved. You won't have it. You can debate Republican politics and Democrat politics. At some point, you're going to agree with some things. But when it comes to the person of Jesus and how men get saved according to the teaching of Jesus, men don't like that. Men love to be saved but they don't like the way that God proposed to save them. They want to be the ones who are doing most of the work in their own salvation. As someone said, men don't hate the doctrine of election. They just hate the fact that they are not the ones doing the election. They want to be the ones who choose God. They don't want God to be the one who chooses them. I want God to choose me. (laughs) Men have lots of opinions about Jesus. But God does not save people based on opinion. He saves by truth and by the work of his son. He saves sinners by 
the obedience of his own son, by the blood of his own son on the cross and no other way. But John tells us and says, three to four days into the Feast of Tabernacles, midway through the Feast. Remember, as I said, this Feast ran for eight days. The Lord Jesus went into the temple to teach. They could not stop him. (laughs) He just went in the temple, and he went wherever the rabbi would stand and started teaching. So John says, Now about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. And the Jews marveled, saying, How does this man know letters, having never studied? The Jews marveled at the knowledge of Jesus. (laughs) How does this man know letters, having not gone to school? (laughs) Why? Because you have God himself in your presence. God does not need to go to school. God does not learn things because to learn means he does not know and God knows all things and God does not think. If I tell Sister Dassel that you don't think, she'll get mad at me. That's supposed to be something negative. But when it comes to God, that's actually acknowledging the person of God God does not think because he knows all things. Why did the Jews say that about Jesus? In Mark 1, 22, this is what Mark says. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority, not as the scribes. The scribes were their teachers and the Pharisees. Jesus knew letters, and that means he sounded Highly educated and had much great understanding and yet had not gone through their education systems. He had not a seminary degree (laughs) and seemed to say things that were not written in their own theological commentaries. He had not studied under any rabbis and yet he confounded them with knowledge, even right from his youth. He spoke as one who had authority, as one who had power, and not like their own scribes and teachers. Jesus spoke with clarity. That's one thing that I always ask the Lord for. I say, Lord, give me understanding. Give me the words to express this understanding. Because if God does not give you the clarity, you won't bring anything useful. He spoke with clarity, with much wisdom, with much conviction, with much passion, with much understanding, and with much power. You see, I propose that even when Jesus was talking to a large crowd of people, 20,000 or so, he didn't even have a microphone and an amplifier. How was he able to reach everyone? He was speaking as God. Every person who needed to hear what Jesus was saying in that crowd had it. They had it. He spoke with so much passion and clarity that when Jesus spoke, everybody just went dead quiet. Because 
God was speaking. God was in their midst. He spoke the words of God. He is the Logos, the very word of God, who was in the beginning with God. And so Isaiah says of him in Isaiah 40, verses 13 and 14, who has directed the spirit of the Lord or as his counselor has taught him. You see, they thought, well, this guy seems to have a lot of understanding and yet he doesn't even have any certificate to prove that he went to school. But Isaiah says, who has been his counselor? Who has taught him? With whom did he take counsel? And who instructed him? And taught him in the path of justice? Who taught him knowledge? And showed him the way of understanding? And in Isaiah 40, 18, Isaiah says, To whom then will you liken the Lord? Or what likeness will you compare to him? And those questions are all rhetorical questions. The answer is no one. (laughs) No one. And that is an encouragement for me as someone who has been called to speak the things of God because I have a problem. I have a problem. Uh, Sister Baker was making fun of me. She thinks that I cannot pronounce clearly the difference between Galatians and Colossians. She says it sounds the same. Galatians and Colossians. Colossians begins with a C-O, which is a K-O. Colossians. The, the, the Lord has unplugged your ears, Sister Dick. <laughs> but hear this. I need that. I need to know that clarity and understanding only comes from the Lord. Because in my day-to-day conversation, I'm not as clear as the way that I speak when I'm teaching the things of Christ. I'm telling you the truth. When I'm Talking about the things of Christ, I just have much more clarity than you ever catch me on any given day. Why? It's because it's the Lord who gives understanding. is the one who gives clarity. That the power may not come from my own eloquence, but from him. Jesus said, the doctrine that he brought, that is the teaching that he brought, was not from him, but was from the Father. In verse 16, he said, My doctrine is not mine, but he is who sent me. The doctrine of Jesus was the doctrine of God. When Jesus was talking, he was not saying that doctrine was not his. Remember, Jesus has two natures. And when you are reading the Bible, you have to be able to see when Jesus is talking as a man and when Jesus is talking as God. He was saying, this doctrine has no origin from man. And if you see me as a man, 
Don't think it's coming from me as a man. It's coming from me as God. Because Jesus is God. So if it's coming from the Father, the Son is also in agreement. For the Father and the Son are one. If you have seen the Son, you have seen the Father. And yet they are separate. So the doctrine that Jesus is teaching is the doctrine that came from the mind of God and not from the mind of man. And Apostle Paul came and would say the same thing or similar thing in Galatians, Sister Becker, in Galatians 1, 11 to 12. But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it. But it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is where Apostle Paul got everything that he taught. He got it from Jesus, which means he got it from God. You have some people who say, Oh, Apostle Paul was just a man. We don't listen to Apostle Paul. We only listen to what Jesus teaches. You know those people, right? They are actually churches who are very strong on that. That they only, they are red letter churches. They only read the stuff that is in the red letters in the Bible. The doctrine of the gospel is not from man and is not of man. If it was up to men, they would only serve the good, the rich, the wise, the powerful, those with no flecks or speckles on their skin, the beautiful, with nicely polished nails, those without any toothaches. No hope for you, Sister Becker. The gospel is not of man. It is the doctrine of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And Jesus brought it and spoke it as the prophet of God. A prophet speaks the words of God. The priest represents the people before God. And the writer of Hebrews says of Jesus as the prophet, He says in Hebrews 1, verses 1 to 2, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets. So God spoke to the fathers by the prophets. Has in these last days spoken to us by his son. So the son is the ultimate prophet of God whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. So God made the world through the Son, Jesus Christ, and that makes Jesus God. So Jesus was the prophet of God, for he spoke the words of God. He was the Logos. He was the word of God made flesh. But what is Jesus' doctrine? What is it that the Father sent him to teach? The Father sent him to teach about 
salvation. About the new birth. Nicodemus, you must be born again to see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus says, but how can these things be? And Jesus says, this is not up to you, Nicodemus. And do not marvel. The wind blows where it wishes. And you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Jesus says, you don't command the Spirit. You need to be born again to believe in Jesus. But just like your birth, you were not in control of it. It's God who is in control of the process. But what we see is just like the wind, you see the blowing of the leaves, you see dust being kicked up, but you can't touch the wind and you can't control the direction of the wind. And God says, that's how salvation works. I can only tell that the wind has blown when I see you believing in Christ. But I don't know how it happened and I can't command it. And if a new birth is necessary for one to see the kingdom of God, then a new birth is an important requirement for one to believe in Jesus. And if that is not in the hands of man, then it means God is sovereign in salvation. It means he does not give all people the ability to see the kingdom of God. God does not give all people the ability to see the kingdom of God. Don't underestimate faith because faith is a gift from God. And the only reason why you believe in Jesus is because God actually gave you the faith. He caused a new birth. He quickened you and made you alive by his Holy Spirit that you may receive the things of God. So with that understanding, John chapter 3 is a teaching that the church does not know and the church does not have. You cannot sprinkle water, you cannot water sprinkle yourself into Christ. You cannot water sprinkle yourself into Christ. You need Christ to sprinkle you with the living water. You need Christ to dip you, to baptize you with the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is given only by the Messiah. It's the work of the Messiah. That's the chief ministry of the Messiah to dip his people in the Holy Spirit. And when you have been dipped into the Holy Spirit, that is when you have been quickened and have been made alive spiritually, then you start to make sense of what I'm talking about. So we don't make anybody a Christian. It's Jesus who makes you a Christian. And if Jesus makes you a Christian, that's good news because there's nothing that you can do to undo it. If I dip you and make you a Christian, I have some dry towels and your Christianity is going to dry up as soon as I remove the water that's on you. 
So you want God to give you the new birth in Christ Jesus. And so Jesus' doctrine is most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And Jesus would say again in John 3, 14, 15, and this is a continuation of the same discussion. Jesus says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The water and the blood that came from the side of Jesus were fluids of a new birth. You can't have a baby without water and blood. Without the fluids of a new birth. And this is why when Jesus was teaching on the new birth, he connected your new birth with the cross. So the cross was the delivery room of your new birth. You were born again on the cross. And so Jesus went on the cross as a woman in labor. You hear that? He went on the cross as a woman in labor. And in Isaiah 53, Isaiah says, He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. So your new birth happened on the cross. This is where the children that belong to God were born. And this is by the will of God, who were born not according to flesh or according to the will of man, but according to the will of God. So you were born again according to the will of God. So in time, the Holy Spirit comes and he gives life. Because you can't give birth to a dead child. God does not give stillbirths. You need life. And that's why you need the Spirit. So the water and the Spirit. Okay, You need the cross and you need the Holy Spirit to be born again. In John 3.17, Jesus says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but the world through him, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. The Son of Man has to be lifted up to be given. And those who look at the raised Son of God who have eternal life, if you have to have life, you have to eat the flesh of the one who has been raised on another tree. See the connection? When Adam fell, he fell into sin because of a fruit that was on a tree. And if you have to live, you need to eat another fruit that is hanged on another tree. And that's Jesus. And that is why he needs to be lifted up. That you may eat his flesh from John 6. And the Jews were stumbling at the theology of Jesus. But that's heavy theology. I was thinking to myself, I was like, 
if I was amongst this crowd, there was no way that I was going to understand what Jesus was saying. Impossible. So those who look at the raised Christ are those who have been born again. If you are not born again, you can't look to Christ. If you are like that woman in Luke 13 who had that infirmity for 18 years, she was bent and bowed down like this for 18 years, just like that, 18 years. Bent and bowed down and the text says, and she could not straighten herself up. Until who showed up? Until Jesus shows up. So as long as Jesus does not show up, your mind, your affections, everything about you is always looking to the things of the world. Always looking down, but never to heaven. But when Jesus shows up, for the first time, she looks up. That's the gospel of grace. That's the gospel of grace. So those who look to Christ are those that he has already straightened up. <laughs> he has already straightened them up to look to heaven. And you can't straighten yourself up to look to Christ unless and until he commands it. But the Son of God was sent not to condemn but to save. This is what we are doing. Time is never really an issue here. So we keep talking until I'm done. I'm reworking the theology of John because that is the doctrine of God. So we are just touching some of the things that Jesus has already taught us and talking to them in the context of what is being said because Jesus here in this conversation, we are not told what he talked to them about. He just opened his mouth and said, oh, guess what? My doctrine is not mine. And they knew what doctrine he had been talking about. So this is all the doctrine that Jesus has been talking about. So we are just going through and having a rundown of that theology and connecting it as God's doctrine. The Son of God was sent not to condemn, but to save. A lot of people don't understand this. A lot of people. The Son of God was sent not to condemn, but to save. And a lot of people run to this verse to say, oh, Jesus doesn't condemn anybody. Jesus is God. He's the one who condemns. <laughs> There's no man who condemns you. Jesus came not to condemn because the world was already condemned. The world was already under condemnation and so it needed a savior. That's what Jesus was saying. So Jesus was sent on this mission by the Father to save some from this condemned world. And so he who believes in the Son is not condemned and will not be condemned. But the unbeliever is condemned already. They have already been condemned. They remain in their state of condemnation because they have rejected the only way to be raised out of that condemnation. So if you talk to a sinner, they're already condemned. If they reject the gospel, they stay condemned. That's why Jesus says, the one who doesn't believe is condemned already. 
The father's doctrine is that men worship. When God looks around the face of the earth, he sees men in worship. <laughs> he sees the temples. He sees the mosques. He sees men engaged in all kinds of worship, but they are ignorant of what they are worshiping. John 4, Jesus talking to the Samaritan woman, verse 22 to 24, he says, you worship. Yes, I acknowledge that you worship. You are engaged in some activity of worship, but you don't know what you're worshiping. <laughs> you worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So people are worshiping. They have big ministries, big edifices, big brand names, and they're called men and women of power, men and women of God. They claim to do miracles. They claim that God speaks to them. Yes, they are all engaged in all kinds of religious activity. They smell nice. I don't know why it's still on my lips. But they do smell nice. They do. Nice clothes. And they look good. But they do not know what they worship. Because they don't know the will of the Father with respect to worship. They don't know the one whom the Father sent. They are not preaching the gospel of grace. Because the only way that you can worship God in a way that he hears is when you talk about his son. And when you talk about your, his son, you talk about what the son did in the salvation of his people. Because the only reason why the world is still in existence is because of the people that belong to Christ. As soon as God removes all his people, he is destroying it. He has already promised to do that. And I pray for each and every one of us that God will cause us to worship him in spirit and in truth. The Father's doctrine is that Jesus is God and is equal to God and does the work of God. John 5, 19 to 23. So you know that we are getting close when we finish John 6 and we are in John 7. We get back to where we started. John 5, 19 to 23. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the father do, for whatever he does, the son also does in like manner. For the father loves the son and shows him all things that he himself does, and he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. For as the father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the son gives life to whom he will. For the father judges no one, but is committed all judgment to the son. That all should honor the son just as they honor the father. He who does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. And this was said 
to the Jews in Judea, that is Jerusalem. Jerusalem was in Judea. And this was said before he had escaped to Galilee in the north. And Jesus says, he is the son of God. And he does all the things that the father does in exactly the same way that God does them. And that says Jesus is God. And Jesus does not apologize for saying that. He doesn't say, oh, oops, I didn't mean to say that. The father loves the son and has committed all things to the son and has given all things to the son that all may be amazed at the son. And so salvation and judgment of sinners is the work that the father has committed to the son that all may marvel, all may be amazed as they see the son of God sitting in his judgment seat. Amazed that God loves Jesus this way. And Jesus says, the father has given salvation this way, that all may honor the son. So if you want to understand why everything happens in the universe, is because of the honor of the son. The father wants his son to be honored. As he is honored. And as I am fond of saying, we will not understand anything in the Bible about God, about Jesus, about the sin that we have, about the fall, about life, about providence, about marriage problems, about broken relationships, about you name it. Why children have sickness, they have struggles, about everything, about ISIS. You will not understand anything until you understand that it's all God's work to honor the son. The son is going to be honored in salvation and the son is going to be honored in judgment. Any other understanding that removes Jesus Christ from the center of all things is just nonsense and foolishness. He's trying to remove the sovereignty of God in all things. The one who has sent the son has told him to say eternal life is in eating the flesh of the son. John 6, 53 to 58. When I write these things, I could summarize them real quick and move to the point, but this is a problem. I write my sermons with the intention of hopefully the Lord, if the Lord purposes, for someone who is a Muslim who never really had the gospel and they stumble on one of our messages. It could be 10 years from now, it could be 15 or 20 years from now. And so you have to clearly spell out what God actually says and then they can square the claims of Jesus with what they've already been taught. And it could be some non-believer somewhere who may not necessarily be a Muslim. But it's necessary for us to do it that way because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. 
So Jesus says in John 6, 53 to 58, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. That's the only condition of life. Eating the flesh of the Son of Man and drinking his blood. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I'll raise him up at the last day, for my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him, as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father. So he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. So Jesus puts himself, himself at the center of salvation and says, You have no life in yourself and I am it. If you have to be saved, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And yet, a lot of people, when they read this, they don't know what is being said. <laughs> Jesus was not teaching that you should eat his body. He was not saying, even when we have communion, that the elements of the bread and the wine actually turn into the blood of Jesus and the body of Jesus. No, that's not what Jesus was teaching. Jesus was teaching that his blood, that is his death, was necessary for you to have eternal life. And the way that you eat the, the body, the flesh of Jesus, and drink his blood is by faith. So when you believe in Jesus, that is what it means to eat the flesh of Jesus and to drink his blood. So he was teaching the necessity of the cross in salvation. Very important. And of course, this teaching has offended the Jews. And the Jews have stopped listening to him. They have stopped following him. And they say, Jesus, this is a hard saying. Who can understand it? Who can hear this? So now, at the Feast of the Tabernacles, all these Jews, we have had all this teaching that we you have taught. They are familiar with all these claims by Jesus. So the Jews from Galilee, the Jews from Jerusalem, the Jews from all around Israel have gathered in Jerusalem. And Jesus begins to teach again. And he says, by the way, everything that I've been telling you is not my teaching. That is the doctrine of my father. And he says in John 7, 17, Oh, we are in John 17, which means we are very close. Yeah, we are very close. If anyone wants to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. Those who seek to do the will of him who sent Jesus shall know without fail what these things are. They shall know, for they shall be taught of the Father. They shall know the will of the Father. But what is the will of the Father? It is to believe in the doctrine of Jesus. To believe in whom he has sent. 
those who want to do his will, according to Jesus' teaching here, he's talking at a much higher level. He's talking about himself. He's not talking about anything that you do. He's talking about himself as God's revelation of salvation. And he says, if you really want to know God's will, is to believe in the doctrine that I've given about myself and about salvation. And a lot of people will say, oh, I want to know God's will for my life. By that, they're saying they're trying to find out if they should buy another car. Okay, that's what they're saying. They, they, they're trying to find out if they... Let me hold my mouth. Those who want to do his will shall know whether it was true or not, whether Jesus was making things up or not. All those that the Father has taught shall know that Jesus is the only way of salvation. They shall know that Jesus accomplished their salvation. They shall know that salvation is the work of glorifying the Son alone and not the will or decision of sinners. They shall know that they only know Jesus because God gave them to the Son. He elected them unto salvation. They will not try to make election about their decision, but the decision of God. They shall know that they were born again only by the will and power of God and not by their baptism. Or because they were born into a family of believers. Salvation does not work like that. Salvation cannot be passed on like a trust fund or some old clothes or grandma's wedding ring. They shall know that salvation cannot be lost because the honor and glory of the son rests on accomplishing our salvation. Salvation cannot be lost because it is the will of the father to see his son possess what he gave him, his people. It is the will of the father to see his only begotten son honored in the salvation of sinners and in the condemnation of those that he did not give to the son. They shall know that the son of God has put his life as a surety of his people and has eternally satisfied what the father required of their salvation. And so the Lord says in verse 18, which is our last verse, he who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true and no unrighteousness is in him. The one who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. And that's a lot of so-called prophets on Facebook. So many prophets. I pray that the Lord would give us, <laughs> would give you and I, the spirit to not speak things from ourselves and not to seek our own glory. Because Jesus says such a person is unrighteous. It means they are not saved. That's what Jesus said. When you stand up before God's people and you don't tell them about Jesus, Jesus says 
that's unrighteousness. And he says it in a bigger context of unrighteousness. He is saying, you are not of mine. Because if, if you were of mine, God the Father would have given you the doctrine of the Father. But the one who seeks the glory of the one who sent Christ speaks not of themselves, but of Christ. And even Apostle Paul said this in 2 Corinthians 4 and 5. He said, for we do not preach ourselves. See, we do not preach ourselves. But Christ Jesus, the Lord, and ourselves, your bond servants, for Jesus' sake. So the one who speaks the truth about God seeks the glory of God. Seeks the glory of Christ. And there's no unrighteousness in them. Why? Because they are born of God and have the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God always testifies of Christ. And so any who believe a teaching of salvation that seeks the glory of men is not from God. They are unrighteous. And when we have been saved, we are saved to exalt in the glory of Christ as the leper who returned to Christ. When he has saved, the Spirit of God always causes you to glory in Christ for all your sufficiency before God. Because salvation is about the glory of God and the Son. So we can tell on whose peril one is when they are writing or teaching about Christ. I threw away about 10 or so books some weeks ago. I never thought I would ever throw away a book. I mean, given the way that we grew up in Zimbabwe, we, we shared one book, eight people, 12 people, one textbook. But I actually threw away some books. Because as the Lord has been teaching me, I realized those books were not really for the glory of Christ. It was just men trying to sell books. If, if you have a book that talks about Jesus and it's on the New York's best seller, then you know that book has nothing to do with the glory of Jesus Christ. A book that is the glory of Jesus Christ does not make it on the New York's list best-selling books. It doesn't. For all who claim to speak for Christ are on someone's peril. If they don't speak to exalt Christ, they are on the peril of their church. If they speak to exalt Christ, then they are on God's peril. And this is the only way you can judge a church. You can judge a people. There are a lot of people who are saying all kinds of things about Jesus. But it's easy to catch once you know the gospel. It doesn't take one minute to tell. You can tell that this guy, yes, he has a big ministry. He has a big church. They have big buildings. They have big cars and big jets and big everything. Big smiles. <laughs> you can tell by their absence of Christ in their teaching. Who are they exalting? If a person is not exalting Jesus, Christ has not called them to preach about him. Christ will not share his glory. 
He will give his mercy. He will give his grace. He will show you his love. He will give you his righteousness. But his glory he will not share with another. Because glory is God's business. God is in the business of glory. Okay? It's all about glory. If we believe we are saved by Jesus plus our good works, then we are exalting in ourselves and not in Christ. And that means we are believing in a false gospel. For Christ was alone on the cross. Christ alone had drops like blood in the garden of Gethsemane. Christ alone was mad more than any other man. Christ alone was forsaken of the Father. Christ alone died and resurrected, and he alone sits on the right hand of majesty on high. And so if anyone brings a teaching of salvation that exalts my will, my choice, it is not the doctrine of the Father, but of men. The doctrine that exalts God exalts grace. It exalts mercy. And it doesn't matter how sincere the person or nice the person who is saying it is. <laughs> it doesn't matter. But this is our doctrine. We are finishing. <laughs> and I love this. <laughs> a fool is one who believes a preacher when they say they are finishing. <laughs> yep. Just go ahead and write that down. But this is our doctrine. <laughs> and I pray that is your doctrine of Christ and him who sent him. Our doctrine is that Jesus Christ is the son of God who is God the son. He is the Logos, the word of God, who was in the beginning with God, the God-man, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the only mediator between God and sinful man, the only high priest of our confession. Our doctrine is that God is sovereign in all things and in salvation. Our doctrine is that God has a people that he gave to Christ to save them, and that Christ completely and perfectly saved them by his own obedience. He justified them, he sanctified them by his blood, and he will glorify them. Our doctrine is that of all those that the Father gave to Christ, none shall be lost. The Father preserves them, and the Son the good shepherd of the sheep gathers all the sheep who are lost to himself. Our doctrine is that salvation is only by grace in Christ alone. Not in our repentance, not in our good works that we do in Christ. Because Apostle Paul says, and if by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. And this doctrine is not mine, but of him who sent me to preach Christ. 
the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the doctrine of Christ. We thank you for the things that you have taught us through him, who is the wisdom of God, who is the word of God, who spoke all things into existence. It is this one who brought us the knowledge of salvation, that we who had leprosy could know the way of cleanliness, how we could be made whole, we who had body parts that were falling apart. Oh Lord, we thank you for the gospel of grace. For this is the best news that men will ever hear, only if they could hear it as lepers, only if they could hear it as sinners. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for this hour. May you impress all this teaching on the hearts of your people. We pray in your precious name. Amen.